Pastor Fred was thanking us as the RBMS committee for coming to you. Actually, it is we who are grateful to you for hosting us. Uh, the hospitality has just been extraordinary. And what a sweet, sweet congregation God has given you. And the work of grace here is evident. You know, you come and you meet people who in many ways are strangers to us and find family. Because we have the same Lord and Savior. We have the same gospel. We have the same Father. We have the same Holy Spirit living inside of us. And we press on to the same hope. What a precious, precious thing. And just a tiny little foretaste of what heaven's going to be. This morning we were on the outing. We went to a, a um, graveyard. And I haven't walked through a graveyard in a while. And I was walking through it. And I was looking at all these old markers. And it had these birth and dates. And it was very content, made me contemplate a lot as I was just walking through it. And I was thinking, as I looked at each of these people, here's kind of a short story in stone of these people's lives. Their lives are finished. How did they die? Did they die dressed in the perfect righteousness of Christ and cleansed by his blood? Or did they die in their sins? Because at the end of the day, there's no more important question than, have you found mercy with your judge? Because someday we must appear before him. My friend Steve Martin has taught me a lesson, and it's probably, in some ways, I would say his life message that he's imparted to me over the years and to many of us. He said, you know, living, when you die, and what is on your tombstone, if nothing can be said, then the word faithful. That's really all that's going to matter. Sometimes we want to be successful. We want to be popular, well-known. But when we stand before Jesus Christ, he's not going to say, well done, good and successful servant. Or well done, good and popular servant. But simply to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, what a joy that will be. And I found myself asking how many of these who did know the Lord that died, how many of them were faithful? And I want to be faithful. And that has everything to do with the discussion tonight of what I have of the, of the topic I have to bring before you. The Hebrew writer tells us that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, those who finished well. They weren't perfect. They were far from perfect. They were sinners just like us. But they finished well because they kept their eyes on Jesus. And the exhortation to us is since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us Say, lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily besets and set our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And William Carey was one of those men who finished well. And that we can find hope for ourselves that a fallible man like him, a sinful man like him, was enabled by grace to finish well. And so by grace we can finish well too. Well, let's pray as we begin our time together. Father, we're going to talk about a man and some of the band of brothers that you raised up around him. And we love to think of these heroes, and we thank you, God, we have heroes in the faith. Lord, we thank you for men who, by your grace, have finished well. And we pray for ourselves. Lord, help us not to bring scandal to your name. Help us to bring glory to you, to realize it's not about us, it's about you. And even as I present the life of William Carey and, and his surrounding friends, Lord, we're not here to glorify William Carey. We're here to glorify William Carey's God. And we pray that you will exalt your son and exalt him. And Lord, would you be pleased even in our young people and some of our children, perhaps this very night, to put a spark of desire in them that perhaps someday they would name Christ where he's never been named before.
And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Your church belongs to an association of churches, and that is Baptists historically have congregated as associations, and, and it's been going on for over 300 years. And there was a group called the Northamptonshire Baptist Association. It was actually smaller than Arbka, 24 member churches. Most of the villages of the churches that were there, you, most people would have never heard of because they were in out-of-the-way places. They were impoverished. Most of their, many of their ministers were bivocational, even sometimes trivocational, because there just wasn't enough funds to, for them to be supported full-time in the ministry. Um, many of the congregations were illiterate. But they had, they wouldn't call them general assemblies, but it was the same thing. They would get together uh, periodically as messengers of the churches to have meetings and general assemblies. And one of those meetings took place on a Tuesday through a Thursday, May the 29th through May the 31st of the year 1792. It took place at a place called the Friars Lane Chapel in Nottingham. And yes, that's Nottingham as in Robin Hood. But they were meeting in this place, 24 of them. On the second day of their conference, on Wednesday morning, May the 30th at 10 a.m., one of their ministers got up to speak. He was 30 years old. He was bivocational, sometimes trivocational. And no one was prepared for what he preached that day. His text was Isaiah 54, verses 2 to 3, which in the old King James, as he would have been reading, it says this, Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. And this man began to preach, and they said he poured his whole soul into what he was preaching, and the unction and power of the Holy Spirit was very evident. Matter of fact, so much so that one of the men there would say a year later, he says, I can still hear that sermon in my head as if it was preached yesterday. It came to be known as the deathless sermon because it just wouldn't die and it wouldn't go away. And he preached powerfully. And what he said was the practice of the Baptist churches was to do what they called village preaching. They would go and preach and do evangelism in the surrounding villages and sometimes would see churches springing up from it. But he said, you know, brothers, we shouldn't be content to just win England for Christ. Let's go for the world. And it was a bold charge. Got through and everybody was just stunned by the boldness of of the proposal. Pretty much in awe. Went on about their business. The next morning they had their associational business meeting. And as it was coming to a close, nothing had been tangibly done to say, let's do something about missions. And the very man who had preached that sermon before they were getting ready to close their business meeting, gripped the arm of the man next to him, who who was a man named Andrew Fuller. And in, in sobs, he said, Is nothing again going to be done, sir? Everybody's feeling a little awkward. So somebody, maybe a little bit sheepishly, says, Well, let's make a motion. Resolved that a plan be prepared against the minister's meeting at Kettering, which was going to take place the next fall, for forming a Baptist society for the propagation, for pro- propagating the gospel among the heathens. They voted, said, yeah, we'll do that, said the benediction, and everybody, everybody went home. Now, if you and I had been there when all this happened, we probably would have thought nothing's going to come of this. I mean, it's a great idea. 
But these guys are nobodies from nowhere. We don't have money. We can't even support ourselves here, much less take on the enterprise of world missions. But the man who preached that sermon, of course, his name was William Carey. And we don't have any surviving copies of that sermon. I'm hoping someday somebody in some archive is going to find a printed copy. But we don't. We do know, though, that either the two main points of the sermon or else the application of the sermon, and you know it too, because what it was was this, expect great things, attempt great things. In other words, and history has filled in the remaining words that are implied, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Point being this, we may be small. And brothers, our association of churches has just gotten smaller. But maybe the Lord is being doing exactly what he did in the judges. You know what? There's too many of you. And you're going to take credit for it when this happens. So I've got to reduce your numbers so it's going to be obvious I did it. Maybe God's preparing to do something really fantastic. And he's going to get all the glory for it. He's, in other words, Carrie was saying... We may be small, but we have a very big God. And he is not limited by our smallness. And they pressed on in faith. Well, indeed, they did meet in Kettering, which was where Andrew Fuller's church was. On Tuesday night, October the 2nd of 1792, they met inside of a widow's house. She had a little tiny parlor on the back of her house. It was 10 feet by 12 feet, 120 feet, and there were 14 men crammed into it like sardines. And they made a proposal, and they said, we are going to name this the uh, Particular Baptist Society for Propagating the Gospel Among the Heathens. The men who were there, there were 14 men. Twelve of them were gospel ministers. One of them was a deacon, and another was a ministerial student. Of those 12 pastors, 11 of them were from the Northamptonshire Association, but another one was not from the Northamptonshire. He was from a sister association called the Midlands Association. He was the pastor of Cannon Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, England. He was 26 years old, but he had an interest in missions. That's why he was there. His name was Samuel Pierce. So Andrew Fuller, William Carey, Samuel Pierce were in that room. I wish I could be a fly on the wall just to look at this and hear what was going on. They made the proposal. And Andrew Fuller passed around his empty snuff box, which always made me think they had a pinch before they went in. But he had an empty snuff box. And on the lid, it had a depiction of Saul's conversion. And they took paper pledges. There were pledges of the financial support that they were going to give to the society. The very next January, they appointed their first two missionaries. The first one was a man named John Thomas. He was a medical, uh, a, a medical doctor who had been in India. He was a particular Baptist. He came back. They said, we'll make him as our first man. As soon as he was volunteered, William Carey said, I'll volunteer to be the second man. And in June of that same year, they sailed for India. Well, tonight, yes, I'm talking about William Carey, but I'm not just talking about William Carey. What I want to talk to you about is what the Holy Spirit did. And not just through William Carey. If you've got the idea that William Carey was just the leader and the pioneer and he did it all by himself, that's not at all what happened. Without the support he had at home, without the support he had on the field, he could not have accomplished the things he accomplished. But at the end of the day, just as John Miller was telling us, it was what Jesus was accomplishing through these brothers. With all due respect to Tom Brokaw, I think of Carey and his friends as the greatest generation. I really do. And tonight, as I seek to tell you about his life, I want to do so under four basic headings. First of all, I want to talk to you just briefly about the times, give you some historical context. When did this man live? 
Secondly, I want to talk to you about the influences. Third, I want to talk to you about the obstacles. I know Alan and Katie know a little bit about obstacles right now, right? And the Lord has brought them through some things already. We thank God for it. But then finally, the work. The work. So first of all, the times. William Carey was born in Paulsbury, England on August the 17th of, the six, of 1761. He died in Serampore, India on June the 9th, 1834. He was born in 1761, the year before, 1760, George III ascended the throne. He would reign for 60 years. This is the same George III that is actually mentioned by name in our Declaration of Independence. Uh, as a matter of fact, when the Declaration of Independence was signed on July the 4th, 1776, uh, Carey was 14 years old. And the American Revolution would take place in the eight years of his uh, teenage years during that time. In 1789, three years before the Mission Society was formed, Carey was a 28-year-old pastor, and France decided to have a revolution of its own. And the French Revolution uh, that took place there uh, ended up with Louis XVI having his uh, head taken off, as well as uh, the uh, Queen Marie Antoinette, and saw the rise of Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, in 1805, some of you maybe who are familiar with British history know that Lord Nelson fought the great Battle of Trafalgar, and though he died, it was a vic- great victory for England. At that point, Kerry had been laboring in India for 12 years. From 1812 to 1814, and this connects to a little bit close to home for you guys, we had a second war with Great Britain, and it ended. a peace treaty was signed in 1814, but the good people of New Orleans did not get the memo, and so they had their own little fight. And as the, as the old song says, we fired our guns and the British kept it coming. We, there wasn't quite as many as there was a while ago. We fired once more until they began to run it. We went down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. Well, Kerry turned 53 that same year. On July the 26th, 1833, just a year before Kerry died, English Parliament abolished the slave trade. And just a few days after that, three days after that, the chief architect of that bill passed away, having seen that the fruit of his labors. He was two years older than Carey and was an ardent supporter of Carey's mission. His name was William Wilberforce. Two years after Carey's death, he died in 1834. A Mexican dictator named Santa Ana marched against the Texians who were uh, held up in a little, uh, little-known place called the Alamo, and they slaughtered 200 Texan patriots. Well, that was two years after Carey died. I give you all that just to give some sense of the background and the context in which he lived. It was obviously a time of political turmoil and upheaval and revolution, but I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, the greatest revolution was the one that was going on on the mission field. So that was certainly the times. But secondly, the influence, the influences. It certainly can be said that the missionary enterprise that uh, was led under Carey and his friends certainly was ultimately the fruit of the Protestant Reformation. But more directly speaking, it was the fruit of what had gone on a generation earlier in what was called the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening took place under men like George Whitfield, whom we heard about last night, and John Wesley. Do you know even secular historians acknowledge the French Revolution never came to England because John Wesley preached the gospel? And because of it, as one brother has said, Peace came to streets because Christ came to hearts. George Whitfield preached in the open air. He was, as you may know, he was ejected from the Church of England. And so he says, well, if I can't have your pulpit, I'll just preach in the open air. 
Pastor Steve said last night, he talked about how he first began preaching in the open air before the coal miners, and he spoke about how they had the blackness on their face and the coal dust as they come out. As Whitfield began to preach and the Holy Spirit's power began to convict these men, he looked out on their faces and he could see white gutters coming down their faces because they began to weep. And they were struck with conviction. In so many ways, Whitfield and, and, and Wesley, men like that, they taught us much about evangelism because they didn't have the mindset, come and see. They had the mindset, go and tell. Let's take the gospel into the highways and the hedges where sinners are. Let's take the gospel to them. J.C. Ryle calls it the aggressive system. If you want a good short biography on, on uh, George Whitfield, read J.C. Ryle's two-chapter biography. It's the best short treatment of George Whitfield you'll find anywhere. But in terms of influence, there's another contemporary of Whitfield and of Wesley that we really cannot overlook, and that is the man named Jonathan Edwards. Particularly his writings that were done a generation earlier would influence the men who, uh, who propagated world missions. Two of his writings I want to highlight at the moment. I'll come to a third later. But one of them was this. In Scotland, there was a movement among Scottish ministers to say we need to begin having concerts of prayer once a month in addition to our normal prayer meetings, praying specifically that God would bring revival to his churches and would propagate his kingdom throughout the world. And they began to do so, and they wrote a proposal that way, and it fell into Jonathan Edwards' hands, and he thought, that is a great idea. I want to do something like that myself. So he penned a book which was published in the year 1747 calling for these same concerts of prayer. Now, if you know anything about those days, when men published books... Their titles would be really, really long. And it would basically give you a table of contents describing what the book was all about. Jonathan Edwards' book, his call to prayer, was 145 words long. I'm going to give you the short version, okay? It was called, An Humble Attempt to Promote Explicit Agreement and Visible Union of God's People in Extraordinary Prayer for the Revival of Religion and the Advancement of Christ's Kingdom on Earth, Pursuant to Scripture Promises and Prophecies Concerning the Last Time. See, now you don't have to read the book. I just read it to you. We'll just call it a humble attempt, which is the shorter version of it. Well, 36 years after it was published, that was 1747, 36 years later, a Scottish minister named John Erskine sent a parcel of books to a particular Baptist minister whose name was John Sutcliffe. John Sutcliffe ministered in Olney, England. He was literally right down the street from John Newton. They knew each other. They were friends. Uh, of course, he was, uh, Newton was an Anglican, and Sutcliffe was a Baptist. He was a particular Baptist. And uh, this packet of material came into Sutcliffe's hands, and in it was an humble attempt, a copy of, of Edward's book that had been written uh, decades earlier. He read it and was deeply convicted and impressed by it. And he, and he was a member of the Northamptonshire Baptist Association, same association Carrie was in. And, they, and he said to the men at one of their association meetings, he says, brothers, we need to read this and we need to start doing this. We need to start having this once a month meeting on the first Monday of every month. We're going to have a special meeting just for revival and for God to advance his kingdom on the earth. They did so. They did so for eight years prior to the formation of the Baptist Society. You can say the Baptist Society was birthed in the prayers of God's people. Now, the Midlands Association, of which Samuel Pierce was a part, adopted the same practice. And when Pierce came to Cannon Street Baptist in Birmingham in the year uh, 1789, he found that that was the most well-attended prayer meeting in the entire church. And he preached about it, promoted it, and it became to be even more well-attended. 
What is fascinating is for him to te- is to read about Pierce and his account of God's people, because as they began to have a vision for world missions, he literally said that you could not hear a prayer prayed in anyone's prayer closet or in their families or in their congregation. He said you will not hear a prayer uttered without the cause of world missions being mentioned in it. Matter of fact, so much so, he said, I would be as surprised to hear the cause of world missions not mentioned in prayer as I would to hear in the name of Jesus himself omitted in a prayer. So the hearts of God's people were being stirred up to the things, uh, to the things of world missions because of all this. There's a second book that uh, Jonathan Edwards penned. Actually, it wasn't his book, but he was influential in getting it to us, and it had a huge influence. On May the 28th of 1747, a 29-year-old young man who was dying uh, of, of sickness rode in, on horseback into the, man, into the front yard of Jonathan Edwards' manse where he lived there in Northampton, Massachusetts. Uh, Edwards had met the young man about four years earlier. He was a student at Yale University, was converted to Christ while he was there. And one of his professors had criticized the men, some of the men and preachers of the Great Awakening. Well, when he heard that, being full of young man's disease, he says, well, that chair over there has more grace in it than that professor. Unfortunately for him, his words got back to the professor, who was not happy that he had said this. And uh, so they had threatened to throw him out. Uh, Jonathan Edwards learned about the young man. He, the young man was very broken and repentant and sought their forgiveness. Uh, Jonathan Edwards came to his aid and tried to say, you know, hey, give the guy a break. He's, he, he's, he's young and stupid. He's young and dumb. It's, you know, forgive him. But they refused. They would not, they, they expelled him and would not let him graduate. But in God's strange providence, an opportunity was opened up to him to go into New York to preach to Native Indians. Now, you need to understand, in, in those days, the colonies, we think of the states as these massive places now. You have to understand the colonies were basically coastline cities. Everything was on the coast, and the western part of all the states was not unexplored territory. But he went into the midst of these native Indians and saw God bring revival. And these uh, Indians began to be converted. Well, by the time he showed up at Jonathan Edwards' uh, manse uh, four years later, in 1747, he was dying of tuberculosis. And as he was dying, and the Edwards family was taking care of him until his death that October, he said to them, he, he had all these books and writings that he had done. He says, I want you to, to burn all my personal effects when I die because I don't want any glory to myself. Jonathan Edwards wrote, read his diary and his journal. He says, sir, you can't burn this. You need to let me edit it. And the man agreed. He let him do so. He died and was buried. Jonathan Edwards took the next two years to different times to edit the work. He actually wrote a short biography of the young man and published it in the year 1749. The book was called The Diary and Journal of David Brainerd. This book would later fall into the hands of William Carey. William Carey would read it, be moved by it. It was one of the few books he actually took with him to India. It is said Carey could quote entire passages of it by heart. Its influence cannot be overestimated. Hundreds of missionaries have gone onto the mission field reading this book. Uh, very wonderful, just anatomy of a godly man. A uh, man who had faults and warts just like all of us, but a man who loved the Lord. So very, very influential in that way. Another huge factor in the influences of, uh, that propelled the, the mission cause was the fact that the Baptist churches were organized as associations. It could not have been done without it. 
As I've already told you, they were impoverished. No one single church could do it but combine their resources together, and they could. And so associations were absolutely essential and necessary to it. But it's not just the reality that they could pool their resources. What is amazing is as you read about the godly men God brought together. Men like Andrew Fuller, John Sutcliffe, John Ryland Jr., Samuel Pierce, William Ward, Joshua Marshman. Some of those men would later be called the Serampore Trio because Joshua Marshman, William Ward both went and joined Kerry on the field. There were also men called the Home Trio. Andrew Fuller, who was the first secretary of the, of the Missionary Society, Sutcliffe and Ryland. Pierce was hugely influential. He died early in 1799, so he was only around a little short while, but a very godly influence. You would recognize, for the most part, their theology, by the way. Uh, Samuel Pierce had to write a uh, circular letter for his association. And in it, he talked about the doctrine of justification. And he read from a confession that you may have heard of called the Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. And he quoted it from chapter 11 on justification. It says, Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's act of obedience into the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and soul righteousness." They receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. He quotes that, and he says this, In this point do all, all, the, all the other lines of our confession meet. For if it be admitted that justification is an act of free grace in God without any respect to the merit or demerit of the person justified, then the doctrines of Jehovah's sovereign love and choosing himself a people before the foundation of the world, his sending his son to expiate their guilt, his effectual operating upon their hearts, and his perfecting the work he has begun in them, until those whom he justifies he also glorifies, will be embraced as necessary parts of the glorious scheme of our salvation. End of quote. Do you notice what he said? Our confession is what he said. But as important as that is, as important as their theology was, what I'm always struck by about these men is how godly they were. They weren't just concerned about doctrine, and they were concerned about doctrine. They wanted to be God's men. You read their diaries and their letters, they're constantly mourning over their own sin. Andrew Fuller sometimes would say, I question if I even know the Lord. William Carey would work so hard, and he would say, I'm not surprised God hasn't given us any conversions, because why would he bless someone as slothful as I am? I'm going, if William Carey's slothful, what am I? But, but seriously, they, they wanted to be holy. They wanted to love the Lord, and they wanted to put sin to death, and they wanted to know their God, and they wanted to make him known to others. So I think it's amazing to see all these godly men, and furthermore... Kerry was very much aware of his need of the help of these men. Fuller said this, you know, after they decided to send Kerry to the mission field, they started realizing we've never done this before. I'm sure that's how you feel as a church, sending Alan and Katie out. We've never done this before. Well, they started kind of thinking of it and going, this is kind of like lowering somebody into an unexplored pit. Okay, who wants to go down to the creepy pit? And this is what Andrew Fuller said. 
He said, quote, our undertaking in India really appeared to me at its commencement to be somewhat like penetrating into a deep mine which had never before been explored. While we were thus deliberating, Carrie, as it were, said, well, I will go down if you will hold the ropes. But before he went down, he, as it seemed to me, took an oath from each of us at the mouth of the pit to this effect, that while we lived, we should never let go the rope. End of quote. Brothers and sisters, you have a big part to play in what's going on in Australia. You've got to hold the ropes. You've got to hold the ropes for this couple. And you've got to promise never to let go of the rope. By God's grace, don't forget about them. Don't just forget. Don't just pray for Alan. Pray for Katie. Pray for the children. Constantly bring them before the Lord. They're going into spiritual warfare. The devil does not like it that the light of the gospel is going to Australia, and he will resist. Good news, though. Our advocate has overcome our adversary. There's another influence I should not overlook in Carrie's life. We've talked about the writings of a godly man like Jonathan Edwards, but there's also the writings of an ungodly man that were influential on him, a man named Captain James Cook. James Cook went around the world, saw all these exotic places nobody had ever heard of before, and he wrote a book called The Voyages of Captain James Cook, and it instantly became an overnight bestseller. But when Carrie got a hold of that book, its effect on him was very similar to what we read about Jesus. The Bible says multiple times Jesus saw the multitudes, and he had compassion on them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. And as he would read about these people, he would realize they didn't have the gospel. They've never heard about Jesus. And that began to move his heart. I told you he was bivocational and sometimes trivocational. He was a pastor. He was also a shoemaker. And he had a shop where he would do all his shoemaking. And that wasn't even enough. He had a growing family. And so he's still at the poverty level. So sometimes he would take on teaching and tutoring for children. And as he did so, he was amazed as he read about James Cook. And through those eyes, his heart was just full of compassion for for people. And so what he did is he stitched together a world map and put it on the side of his his shop where he did his shoemaking. And any time he found any scrap of data at all about any of the places in the world, he would write it down. And Andrew Fuller said when you went to his shop, you'd see this world map and there's all these pieces of paper all over it where he's just collecting and collating all this data. And then we'll see something, how that was used in God's hands in a little bit. Um, but this, suffice to say this, how many of you are familiar with Operation World? How many of you ever used Operation World? You realize you owe a debt of gratitude to William Carey because he was the forerunner in all this. He was the first one starting to do this, collate all this data and say, let's look at the harvest field. What is the harvest field? And think about it. But not only did he put up the map, he was in the shoe shop, and so he stitched together a leather globe. And he put that leather globe in front of his students his, that he was tutoring, And they said that there were times that he would be giving geography lessons. And he would say, look, children, here's this island, and it's this big and this long, and there's this many people on it, and this is their religion. And suddenly he would burst into tears and say, they're all pagans. They've never heard of Jesus because no one has told them. That's the kind of heart that God was giving this man. So you've seen something of the times. We've seen something of the influences on William Carey. Let's talk about the obstacles. Three specific obstacles that I want to speak to you about. The first one was hyper-Calvinism. Hyper-Calvinism was rampant in the particular Baptist movement at that time. What is hyper-Calvinism? Well, the Bible teaches two things that seem to be at odds with one another. And yet they're not. But in our minds, we have a hard time putting them together. Well, the Bible teaches a lot of things like that. But this particular thing is this. 
The Bible clearly tells us that it is the responsibility, the duty of every sinner to repent of his sins and to put his faith in Jesus. It calls all sinners to repent. Just like at Mars Hill, what did Paul say to these ignorant pagans? He says, these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. All right? So there's this duty pressed upon all sinners. But at the same time, the same Bible teaches us that sinners have no natural ability, no moral ability to repent and believe. Uh, some of you may know the name B.M. Palmer. He was a, a Presbyterian minister uh, back in the 19th century. A young man was staying in his home and had heard him preach. And he came in. He was unregenerate. He came into his study. Uh, at the time, B.M. Palmer was, was writing uh, some, some uh, things on his, in his diary or something. And this young man says, you know, you pastors are something else. You can contradict yourself in the same sermon and not even bat an eye. He said, this morning... You said in the pulpit, I must repent of my sins and believe in Jesus or I would surely be damned. And you turned right around and said, I have no ability to repent and believe. Which is it? And B.M. Palmer said, I didn't even lift up my eye or remove my pen. I just said to him, young man, all I can say to you is if you can repent, you must. Suddenly things got quiet. Next thing you know, he hears weeping. He looks up at this young man and he says, I've been trying for three days and I cannot and B.M. Palmer says, ah, now we can go to God. And he bowed down and he said, I pray for that boy like he was the first person in the world to ever struggle with this problem. Oh, Lord, here's a helpless soul who must repent or he will be damned. But he can't. What's he going to do? He got through praying and he said, I didn't give that boy one bit of encouragement. I walked out and left his helpless soul in the hand of a sovereign God. And with a matter of hours, he had found peace with Christ. But here was the problem. The Arminian looks at these calls to repent and to believe. And he says, well, if God requires sinners to repent and believe, they must have a free will, the natural ability to repent and believe. So we don't believe in total depravity. But then the hyper-Calvinists went the other direction. They said, well, the Bible says man can't repent and can't believe apart from God's grace. Therefore, you can't call upon, press upon him the duty to do so. You have to wait until you see what they call motions of the Spirit upon them to see if they're signs that they're God's elect and then preach the gospel to them. I'm not sure what you would try to figure out. You know, how do you figure out somebody's elect? But even to the sinner, it was told to them, you have no warrant to believe in Jesus unless you first come to the assurance that you're God's elect. All right? That's what they would teach them. How do you come to know your God's elect? You have to come to that assurance first, and then you have a warrant. It's kind of like Queen Esther. Queen Esther went into the king when she had not been summoned, and if he had not extended his scepter to her, she would have been killed right then and there. And basically what the hyper-Calvinist was saying, you're going to come to King Jesus, and you don't have a warrant to believe. He's not going to extend his scepter to you. Andrew Fuller grew up under this kind of preaching, and he said because of it, he says he, the, our minister had nothing to say to those who are outside of Christ. And this was rampant in, in the circles that they were in. And so you can imagine doing evangelism and calling all men to repent and believe was not something that the uh, denomination was that excited about. But it was Fuller whom the Lord used to deal with this issue. He began to search the scriptures and he realized that, first of all, Jesus and the apostles called men to repent and believe indiscriminately and very freely. He read the diaries and the journals of two Calvinistic ministries, John Eliot, uh, two Calvinistic missionaries, John Eliot and David Brainerd. And these men were convinced Calvinists, and yet they too 
freely offer the gospel to others. He read John Bunyan's works. And again, same thing. But the book that helped him the most was, again, Jonathan Edwards' inquiry into the freedom of the will. And he came to conclude, no, there's no contradiction between these two things. By the way, it's been said, it's very helpful. Arminianism is all door and no house. Hyper-Calvinism is all house and no door. But the gospel is a house with a door. And so Andrew Fuller published a book in the year 1785 called The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation. And it broke the back of hyper-Calvinism. And they said, all right, let's do missions. But I want to make an application here before we go any further. Doubtless, even in a crowd this size, there are some who have not yet closed with Christ. I want to encourage you with something. You don't have to know whether or not you're elect in order to come to Christ. You have to know you're a sinner. And Christ is a great Savior. And He has promised if you'll come to Him, He will receive you and He will save you. And you say, but you don't know my past. And you don't know how wicked and bad I am. And you don't know all the things that I've done that are shameful and wrong. You're right, I don't. The Lord does. But I have good news for you. Jesus didn't come to save righteous people who've got their lives all together. He died for sinners. He died for sinners who've made a shipwreck of their life. That's who he came to save. If you're that person, you're exactly the sort he came to save. And you don't have to know whether you're elect or not. You simply come to Christ because he promises he receives sinners. We sang it just a couple of, I guess it was yesterday, we sang it. The great hymn, he is willing, or he is able, he is able, he is willing. Doubt no more. Jesus is able to save you. He's just as willing as he is able. Come to him as a sinner. George Whitfield has a saying, he said, you must come to Christ through the grammar school of repentance and faith, and then you can graduate to the university of election. But this broke the back of hyper-Calvinism. There's a second issue, though, a second hindrance before the uh, men who were trying to do the missions. And that was what was called the modern question. It was as big as the problem of hyper-Calvinism. The modern question was this. We think that the apostles already fulfilled the Great Commission. And since they fulfilled it, we don't have to do it anymore. As a matter of fact, this was so pervasive, it actually made its way into their hymnody. One of their hymns said this, quote, Go ye into all the world, the Lord of old did say, but now where he hath placed thee, there he would have thee stay. End of quote. It's really bad. It's bad enough when you teach a bad doctrine, but when you start singing it, things are getting really bad, right? Well, there's a story of questionable historicity that involved this question. Baptist minister John Ryland Sr., who was part of the Northamptonshire Association in 1786, was sitting around with a group of ministers. William Carey was there. And he asked the question, hey, guys, let's talk about some theology and let's debate something. And William Carey proposed, let's talk about whether or not the command given to the apostles to teach all nations was obligatory on all succeeding ministers to the end of the world, seeing that the accompanying promise was of equal extent. And according to the legend, John Ryland, Sr., uh, John Ryland Sr. said, sit down, young man, sit down. When God is pleased to save the heathen, he'll do it without your help or mine. Now, there's question as to whether or not that was actually said. William Carey said that was what was said. John Ryland's son, John Ryland Jr., said it wasn't quite that way. But whatever the case, there seems to be evidence there was some sort of controversy going on. And we know for a fact this controversy of whether or not we're supposed to continue obeying the uh, uh, the Great Commission was, was an issue. A third obstacle was simply the, impractic, the impracticalness of it. Nobody knows who we are. We don't have much money. How are we? We can't even support ourselves, much less fund the missionary enterprise. But even more than that, 
you know, this could potentially be lethal. You know, we could send somebody to a nation full of cannibals and they'll get their first taste of the gospel because they're going to cook us and eat us. I mean, that was literally the, the way people thought. Well, if Andrew Fuller was instrumental in overcoming, helping to overcome the hyper-Calvinist question, it was William Carey who was instrumental in overcoming the modern question. At the encouragement of his friends, he published a book in 1792 called An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. I've got a copy of it right here. If you want to read it for yourself, you can go on the book table. There's a book by Daniel Weber called William Carey, The Missionary Vision. The entire thing's printed in, in, in the middle of it. You can read it. It's still relevant today. Late missiologist J. Herbert Cain said that it, this book was the 95 Theses of the World Missions Movement. And basically, what did he do? Carey, in the first section, answers the modern question. He says, you know something? As churches, we baptize new believers, don't we? And we still claim the promise that Jesus is going to be with us till the end of the age. How can we obey the command to baptize and claim the promise of the Great Commission, but we're not going to obey the other parts that tell us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? It just doesn't make any sense. In the second section, he outlined the history of missions, starting with a survey of the book of Acts and bringing it up to men like Brainerd and things like that and what had been attempted in the past. In the middle section of the book, he took his wall map and took all that data and gave a survey of what the need was. And so he gives you the statistics about what, the, what was going on in the nations. In the final sections, he then talks about the practicality of it. He says, brothers, there are people who risk life and limb so they can make more money. They do all kinds of things. Are, are sending out people to all parts of the world. And we're Christians and we have the greatest cause and we're not willing to sacrifice for this. And maybe we will be martyred. But are, isn't Jesus worth that to us? We have a command, and we have a mean, the means to obey the command, so what excuse do we have not to obey it? Well, again, this was a massive thing. You might say they were expecting great things from God. They were attempting great things from God. So we've seen the times, the influences, the obstacles, but now I want to focus finally on the work. Let's talk about the work. The William Carey family left and the John Thomas family left on June the 13th, 1793, five months it took them to get to India. And then it was seven years of hard toil and labor before they even saw one convert. But finally, in God's strange providence, Krishna Powell, the first convert ever made, it's amazing how it happened. He fell and dislocated his shoulder. And because he was in so much pain, they said, hey, there's this medical doctor. His name's John Thomas, and you can get him to reset your shoulder. So they brought him to John Thomas, he reset his shoulder, and then he began to share the gospel with him. And William Carey began to share the gospel with him. And then, in the first or the last Lord's Day of the year 1800, Carey had the privilege of baptizing Krishna Pal in the Hooghly River along with his oldest son, Felix. Now you think to yourself, seven years, one convert. Not much to show. Surely they were discouraged. Actually, they weren't. This is what they said about it. Quote, he was only one, but a continent was coming behind him. The divine grace which changed one Indian's heart could obviously change a hundred thousand. End of quote. Matt, a big part of Carey's work, of course, was Bible translation. 19th century uh, missionary to the New Hebrides, John Payton, whom I mentioned yesterday, once wrote that Bible translation is, quote, that noblest handmaid of every missionary enterprise. Our confession says plainly that it is our task to translate the, the scriptures into the vulgar language in which they come. 
In other words, people don't have to learn Latin. They don't have to learn English. It is our task to translate the Bible into their tongue. Now, of course, we sit here in the 21st century and go, well, yeah, of course we're supposed to do Bible translation. You need to understand that was a big deal when you said that in the 17th century. William Tyndale was killed for translating the Bible into English. It was forbidden by Roman Catholics that you should translate the Bible. As a matter of fact, I would say to you, Bible translation is a distinctively Protestant enterprise. And so this is what Carey did, and he began to work in Bible translation. And there's a, and he would say this later, he would say, quote, to give a man a New Testament who never saw it, who, was, had been, who has been reading lies as a word of God, to give him these everlasting lines which angels would be glad to read. This, this is my blessed work. End of quote. They set up a printing press, started putting out Bibles. On February the 7th, 1801, the first Bengali New Testament was printed. I want to tell you a story about this because you're going to love this. It's a great anecdote. When they first translated the, that Bengali New Testament, they sent messengers who spread it out to the surrounding villages, places that they as missionaries couldn't quite go to just yet. And one of those New Testaments came to a little uh, village in India called Dhaka. Missionaries did not get to follow up for 17 years. 17 years later, they walk into Dhaka, and there are no idols anywhere. The surrounding villages had no idols. Now, if you know anything about India, there's idols. I mean, they had idols for everything. It's like Mars Hill. It's just idol, an idol factory. There's no idols anywhere. They're looking around going, this is really bizarre. And they asked the local people, they said, why don't you have idols? They said, oh, we'll show you. They took them into a room. They pull out an old yellow tattered copy, one single Bengali New Testament. They said, this book came to us 17 years ago, and we read it. And we realized this was the true God. And we put away all of our idols. And we've been waiting for 17 years for someone to come tell us about this book. You want to get behind Bible translation, brothers and sisters, because the Lord does great things with it. In 1834, when Carey died, portions of the Holy Scriptures had been translated into 34 different languages. There were six complete translations of the entire Bible, 23 complete New Testaments. Quite a good bit of work. There were 40 fellow laborers engaged in missionary work when he died. At his death, there were 26 indigenous, particular Baptist churches that he left in his wake in India. When he went there, there were none. 26 local churches planted. And beyond that, of course, of the accomplishments and the legacy he left behind. One other thing I want to talk about, and then I'll make some application of Carrie's life to us. We talked yesterday about when you go into a culture, you have to try to be discerning about which parts of the culture need to be confronted as sin and which parts can be adopted because they're just things indifferent. We find in Kerry some real balance here. When they walked into India, one of the questions they had to face was the, the names of the people there were Hindu names. They were associated with pagan rituals. And the question was, when they become Christians, do, they, do, we, do we need to require them to change their names and to adopt Christian names? And you know what they did to figure it out? They opened their Bibles. And they realized, you know what? The name Abram and Sarah actually have pagan connections. Apollos has pagan roots, and Apollos could still be Apollos. He didn't have to change his name. So when Christian Powell gets saved, Christian Powell can still be Christian Powell. And so they solved that problem. It's fine for them to keep their old Hindu names. They are new creatures in Christ. But then there was another issue that they had to face, and it was the issue of communion. In those days, they didn't do like we do. We pass out the you know, we've got a, something that passes out the individual cups and we drink the individual cups. They used a common cup. 
they would share a common cup and pass it around, and each person would drink from that same common cup when they took the Lord's Supper. The problem in India was you had the caste system, which was part and parcel of Indian culture. And there were missionaries who had the problem with, here's the question, okay, when someone comes to Christ and he's a high caste person, a high caste person can't drink after a lower caste person or he loses his caste. He's an outcast from his family and all the rest. And so there were missionaries who tried to accommodate that. And then what they would do is they'd have different cups for different castes. So all the high caste people would share that cup and the low caste people would share their cup. And what that, what's that cause? It causes division in the body of Christ. William Carey and his friends looked at that and said, that is contrary to the gospel. No, we won't do that. If you're going to be baptized as a convert, you have to renounce caste. And it's just part of the cost of following Jesus. And you had to be willing to have communion with your lower caste brothers because we are one body in Christ. First, now, Krishna Powell was a low caste man. That was the first convert. The first high caste man that was ever converted. I love this story. so great. They baptized him. He was added to the church. And that evening they had their first Lord's Supper together. And the high caste man was sitting there in the room and they were passing the cup around. Krishna Powell, the low caste man, put the cup to his lips. The high caste man got out of his seat walked over, took the cup from Krishna Pal's hand, and put it to his lips. You're my brother in Christ. Praise God for that. What a tremendous, tremendous thing. Well, what can we learn from William Carey? There's three things I would set before you. First, and this is very important, those who send are as important to the missionary endeavor as those who are sent. In Romans chapter 8, we have what's called the golden chain of redemption. And you all know what that is, right? Paul says, those whom God foreknew, these he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, these he called, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, he glorified. God foreknew a people, not because he foresaw them, but because he set his love upon them in eternity past. And he foreknew them. He knew a people. He didn't say he foresaw something. He says he foreknew a people. And the people he knew whom he had chosen, he predestined. He predestined, he foreordained they should be conformed to the image of his son. And in the fullness of time, through his word and spirit, he calls them. And it's an effectual call because they all come to Christ. Irresistibly, not kicking and screaming, but most willingly because God makes us willing. He makes Jesus so irresistible to us, we come fleeing to him and embrace him. And those whom he calls, he justifies. He imputes the righteousness of Christ to them. And then he says, those who justifies, he glorified. Now, it's interesting, our glorification is still in the future. But so certain and steadfast it's going to happen. He speaks of it in the past tense. It's good as done. All right? That's the golden chain of redemption. Now tell me, which of those chains can you get rid of? Which one of those links in the chain can you get rid of? None of them. But you realize, two chapters later in Romans 10, Paul gives us another golden chain. It's a golden chain of world missions. And he gives it in reverse order. He says, those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But what's he say next? How shall they call upon him who they do not believe in? So you got to call as one of the links and believing, having faith in Jesus is the next link. But how can they believe in someone they've never heard of? So hearing is the third link. How can they hear if there's not a preacher? That's the fourth link. But there's a fifth link. How can they preach unless they are sent? When I was in Bible college, sometimes you would hear zealous missionaries say, if you can't be a goer, at least you can be a sender. But do you realize the implications of those words are somehow you're not as spiritual if you're a sender rather than a goer? According to Paul, that's not true. You are just as essential as a sender. 
to the cause of world missions as those who are going. And so, brothers and sisters, don't undermine or underestimate the role you have in sending this dear couple out. You are huge to the missionary enterprise. And when they stand and get their rewards from Christ someday, you're going to share in those rewards. Because you had a part in holding the ropes. And we've got to learn how to hold the ropes. We need to study missiology, even if you're not going to be a missionary. I want these folks to know the ropes are being held. And I've got to have strong spiritual biceps to do that. And that means I've got to know mission theory and mission history. I want to know and eat, sleep, and drink mission so I can help in any way I can. Because at this point, I don't feel called to go myself, but I do feel called to hold the ropes. And you are called to hold the ropes. Be faithful to do so. Be, learn all you can about missions. I encourage you, avail yourself of, this, of these books here. Eat them up. Read them so you can know about missions. Second thing I've set before you is we learn from Carrie. We don't just need to learn from Carrie's triumphs. We need to learn from his mistakes too. And in sending out missionaries, lay hands on no man hastily. The Pickering Baptist Mission Society was formed on October 2nd, 1792. It was the very next month in November that I believe it was Andrew Fuller started corresponding with this John Thomas fellow. But he had never heard of John Thomas before that. That was November. Two months later... He meets him face-to-face finally on January the 9th of the year 1793, and they appoint him to be a missionary. But they had only corresponded with him three months. And this was the first time they ever met him face-to-face. They were sending somebody out that they really did not know. Not wise. And John Thomas was a man who was heavily in debt because he lived beyond his means. And it almost sabotaged the entire missionary enterprise because when his creditors find out he's on a ship on a massive voyage for five months to go to India, they're going, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. He owes us money. How did he get this? And he was almost arrested because of it. The whole thing was almost stopped before it started. But once he did get there on the mission field, he again began living beyond his means. So there was a separation between John Thomas and William Carey. Now, they were reconciled. And as I've told you, God used John Thomas instrumentally for Krishna Powell's conversion. But after that time, do you know that John Thomas was not able to come to the baptism of Krishna Powell? You know why? Because he went crazy. Literally, they had to chain him to his bed to keep him from hurting himself. When they baptized in the Hooghly River, they could hear him screaming from the mission compound. Because they didn't stop to think, we need to know this man. You are sending out a brother you know and know well. But we need to be careful. You know, it's easy to understand. Oh, we're excited about this. We we're thinking about sending someone to India. Here's a guy who's been to India. Sure, obviously, this is God's providence. They made a mistake there. But even in William Carey's case, they made a mistake. Not, I believe William Carey was the right man, but I don't believe it was the right time. Because how many of you know the story about Dorothy Carey, his wife? William Carey had a heart to go to India. He was all zealous for it. Dorothy was adamantly opposed to it. And they wrestled with this, tried to persuade her, and she wasn't persuaded. In fairness to her, she had never been more than 50 miles away from her home, and we're talking about going to this exotic place on the other side of the world. Scary to her. But basically, John Thomas manipulated her into going. He basically said, Carrie said, I'm going to go. I'll stay there for two or three years. I'll take my oldest son, Felix. We'll come back. We'll get Dorothy and the rest of the kids. You understand Dorothy was also pregnant at the time. She's about to have another child. He's like, we're about to leave? What in the world? Well, they had an opportunity to go back one more time and see her. John Thomas basically said to her, if you don't get into the carriage right now and go with this, you'll never see your husband or your oldest son alive again. Well, ladies, what would you do if somebody told you that? 
So all this resistance suddenly turned into, okay, I'll go. She packed up her things, and they went on the long voyage and got there. But in the first year, they moved from place to place. The separation with John Thomas had taken place. Carrie was struggling to make ends meet, moving from place to place. They were getting sick with, with the diseases of the place. The worst thing came about a year after they had arrived when their son, Peter, who was only five years old, died. Can you imagine as a wife saying, I told you, I didn't want to go, and now Peter is dead. She lost her sanity. Two different times she tried to kill William Carey. She began to say that he was uh, being unfaithful to her and, and fooling around with the women in India. Some of the women who began to be a part of the missionary compound at first wondered, maybe she's got something. Maybe Carrie's not being faithful. But then she said, oh, he's being unfaithful with you too. And I said, well, no, he's not. But she, was, she would literally get so stark raving mad that she would be screaming obscenities from her bed, chained to her bed in the other room while Carrie's in his room trying to translate the Bible. I told you they could hear the screams of John Thomas down at the Hoogley River. They could also hear the screams of Dorothy while her son was being baptized. She stayed in that way for 12 years and died in that same condition. And the reason I tell you this is my heart aches for Dorothy Carey. My heart goes out to her. I tend to think that the men made a mistake in this way. There's no calling to be a pastor's wife. There's no office of pastor's wife or, or missionary wife per se. But, brothers, we need to take into account that a woman is a part of her husband's calling. And she's essential to it. She's essential to it. And it, the Bible even gives qualifications for a wife. Likewise, their wives must be. And gives us some of those things. A woman must be examined. As RBMS, as a church, we have to ask things of the wives and just get to know them. Now, you have a situation where your missionary's wife is very much on board. There's not an issue like Dorothy Carey. Praise God for that. But brethren, don't forget the wives of the missionaries. Don't forget about them and the things they're enduring. Matter of fact, don't forget about your pastor's wives. They endure more than you know. My family and I were going through a particularly hard time in our church at one point years ago. And I was going through a lot of hurt and heartache. My wife told me, she reminded me of a film called Cinderella Man. It's about James J. Braddock, the heavyweight champion in the Depression who uh, was fighting. And in the film, uh, he keeps on telling his wife, he says, Honey, come see me fight. Come watch me fight. She's like, No, I'm not going to watch you fight. And finally, at one point in the film, she says, I'll tell you why I don't go see you fight. Because every time you're hit, I feel it. My wife, with tears running down her face, said that to me as a pastor. Every time you're hit, I feel it. And I want to stand up at times and vindicate you to people in front of the church. And I know I can't. i got to be quiet. I have to keep this inside. But I feel it inside. Our pastor's wives know this. And they know it quite well, what this is like. Don't forget to pray for Katie. Don't forget to pray for this dear sister. And to pray for all our missionaries. One of the things Pat, Steve and I have talked about many times as much as is possible in us, we don't want to, we don't want a Dorothy carry on our watch. We we want to pray for them and be concerned about. It. So let's not only learn from Carrie's successes, let's learn from his mistakes. The final thing I want to say to you in the final application, perhaps maybe the most important. We live in days in which we are seeing a great recovery of the same theology of Carrie and his friends.
And we praise God for that. Last 50 years have seen a rebirth, a, re, a recovery of, of the great doctrines of grace and the confessions they loved. But are we seeing the same corresponding recovery of their hearts? You know, I told you at the beginning last yesterday that the goal of world missions ultimately is God's glory. Yes, that is true. And that sustains us even when people are rejecting us and being wicked and evil. But that doesn't mean that we're not supposed to love people. That we're supposed to keep before us the value of never dying souls. That we are there to love them. I'm always convicted by Paul in Romans chapter 9. It's an amazing statement. When he says, I tell you this before God, I'm not lying. That, it, that I, my heart aches for my countrymen, the Israelites, and I could wish myself accursed from Christ for their sakes. What's he saying? He's saying, if somehow me being severed from Christ would allow them to be grafted in, I would wish it. I would sell my soul for their conversion. Isn't that something? That's an amazing I can't even fathom that kind of love. Carrie was a man who loved doctrine, yes. He loved the doctrines of grace and he loved our confession and all those things. But he loved souls. And he could look at a globe and begin weeping. These people don't know Jesus. The harvest field is plentiful. The labors are few. And he would weep over souls. I want to have a heart that weeps over souls. Then when I look at people's eyes, I know they're going to hear Jesus say one of two things to them on judgment day. Either he's going to say, come, you blessed my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Or he's going to say, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his, and his angels. And the only thing standing between them and eternity in hell is the gospel we have. And I want to have that kind of heart. I don't think I do have that kind of heart, but I want it. And I look at Carrie and I see a man who had that kind of a heart. May God grant us that kind of a heart as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for faithful men, but we thank you even more for a faithful God, a God who uses fallible men like us to accomplish your purposes. And Lord, ultimately, it is all about your glory. It's all about your honor. And we pray, Lord, for our dear brother and his, and his wife and their children who are about to go to Australia. King of Nations, first of all, we praise you we prayed and prayed because their first visa was declined. And yet, look at what you've done, King of Nations. You've done something far greater than we could have imagined. And you're opening that way. And we pray in your providence that they will indeed receive that second visa. More importantly, Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit will go ahead of them. That you will sustain this dear couple and their children. We pray for each of the children that they will come to know their parents' Savior. That they will not resent being on the mission field, but will rejoice in your cause. We pray for the people who don't yet know Jesus, who are going to come to know Jesus in the coming years in Australia. We pray for Covenant Baptist Church that will be planted there in Perth as you, as you see fit. And, Lord, we know we can go through all the means and do all the right things and write the Constitution. But at the end of the day, Lord Jesus, you are the one who must put your lampstand there. And we pray that you will. And not just that lampstand, multiply the lampstands and bring glory to yourself through the establishment of indigenous local churches in that place. Thank you for meeting us in these past two days. We pray as each of us travel home that you will protect us and watch over us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.